Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Dining Without Ancestors. When Henry VIII died on the 28th of January 1547, at the age of 55 he weighed about 400 pounds. His waist was approximately 54 inches. It was said that two of the biggest men to be found in England could fit inside his doublet. Implicit to power and wealth is luxury. The luxury to do as you wish manifests into the luxury to act however you like. This we know of a man who managed six wives at a time when a multiple of greater than one was forbidden by the most powerful institution at the time. Innate to his story is excess, his craving and his desire. The first two initial images that form when his name is spoken is his having more wives than anyone, his dispatching avariciously of them once devoured, and his excess weight at a time when obesity was as scarce as sanitation. So this is a story of how a Tudor king gorged while his peasantry starved. You can expect to learn whether the man's appetitive desires were established necessarily by virtue of his reputation. What did he literally feed that appetite, and what other than his own potbelly were the consequences of his plate size? What did a traditional banquet at Hampton Court look like? What dishes were served, and how did this contrast to the diet of the peasants? First, we must establish some sort of historical background. Henry VIII was born at Greenwich on the 28th of June 1491, the second son of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. He became heir to the throne on the death of his older brother, Prince Albert, in 1502 and succeeded in 1509. In his youth, he was athletic and highly intelligent. A contemporary observer described him thus. He speaks good French, Latin, Spanish. He's very religious. He had three masses a day when he hunted. He is extremely fond of hunting. He is also fond of tennis. His dedication to hunting and tennis remained with him throughout his life. The grounds and the court to which his hobbies were practised are still viewable today as old stomping ground, Hampton Court. If you haven't visited, I would strongly recommend it. The scale and depth of the king's life of luxury triumphing over peasantry is truly intriguing. Henry's scholarly interests included writing both books and music. He was a lavish patron of the arts. He was an accomplished player of many instruments and a composer. Greensleeves, the popular Tudor melody frequently attributed to him, is, however, almost certainly not one of his compositions. As the author of a best-selling book, attacking Martin Luther and supporting the Roman Catholic Church, ironically, in 1521, Henry was given the title Defender of the Faith by the Pope. This becomes an interesting dichotomy of Henry, as historians debate the true locus of his thoughts on religion. Was this his genuine belief? Was he a good Catholic boy? When he came to divorce Catherine of Aragon, spoiler alert, it was only then he had a change of heart. Or did he remain true to his Catholicism privately, only publicly acknowledging his necessity to break away from the church in order to secure a male heir to the throne, valuing this as more important? Or rather, is it that he was a generally a populist until his own motivations manifested, in which case the grip of power which sat so delicately in his hand could be squeezed until he had everything he could ever want. In other words, was he just spoiled? The spoiled angle is difficult to contend with. 
whilst Henry was waiting patiently, hunting and playing tennis until his ascendancy to the Tudor throne, the rest of the country had slightly different ambitions. Even to have concerns of book writing and the arts, more generally, was impossible for 90% of the population who lived in rural communities and earned the majority of their income from either livestock or arable farming. This day-to-day life began at dawn, involved hard manual labour aided by very few tools or props until the setting sun made it impossible to see whether the hoe you were using had chopped off your frozen finger ends. A propensity towards backbreaking and disease dodging were the assets a man such as this could take any pride in. Meanwhile, after his ascendancy, the king was floating barges brimming with enough courses for ten tasting menus down the Thames to Hampton Court, where servants laid out the melee of mezes atop the solid oak table long enough to wrap around the whole peasant village. To track this level of luxury and join Big Henry for a meal, we must continue to follow little Henry's rise. Henry Tudor, Henry VIII's father, was one of the last surviving heirs of the House of Lancaster, one of two powerful medieval royal families who fought over the throne for generations during the War of the Roses. Henry VII seized the throne at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, defeating Richard III, the last monarch from the House of York, the Lancastrians' great rivals. As Henry VII, the new king, sought to bring an end to a war by marrying Elizabeth of York, his clever political and financial management returned England to some sort of stability. Perhaps the origin of Henry VIII's entitlement and appetite for excess comes from the hopes for a Tudor dynasty resting on his elder brother Arthur, whilst Henry was a bonus and destined for a life as a prince. Interestingly, both of Henry VIII's sisters also became queens, with Margaret marrying James IV of Scotland in 1503 and Mary marrying Louis XII of France in 1514. Gotta keep that blue blood flowing. Little is known about the relationship between the brothers, although it is known that Henry kept his late brother's garter's robe through his lives. Soon after Henry's christening, he was sent to join his sister Margaret at Elton Palace to be raised in a predominantly female household. As an aside from his childhood, Henry, at 10 years old, escorted Catherine of Aragon on her wedding day to his own brother, Arthur. He described her in recounting that day as a beautiful creature. Perhaps that is keeping it in-house a little too far to the extreme, but he is an extreme man, I guess. His brother would die a year later, overnight making a sideline spare into an heir that would need polishing. His father died only six years later in 1509, making Henry king at 17. Again, another example of the world granting him more than he might need or want before he could ever be ready for it. This Henry had to take with a spoonful of sugar, swallowing the crown and embracing a fresh beginning for England something his dual Lancastrian and Yorkist blood represented. Virtually, his first act as king was to marry Catherine of Aragon. How romantic. Although once his ascension was confirmed, Henry didn't immediately embody the spherical caricature we view his portraits through today. In plainer words, he wasn't always fat. Henry was a natural athlete, an accomplished equestrian, he loved to hunt, and performed dressage. Also excelled in wrestling, 
tennis and archery. His favourite sport, jousting. And jousting it was that led to his extraordinary weight gain and a host of other illnesses. Jousting was an extremely dangerous medieval sport. Men were killed in the lists. If you can imagine, two fully armoured men, their armour weighing 100 to 120 pounds each, holding a pole that's about 12 feet long and weighed approximately 11 pounds. Now, imagine them astride huge destriers, a type of warhorse, that were also fully armoured. They are each at opposite ends of the tilt yard. It's the typification of masculine pride. Like a medieval 18 plus equivalent of knuckles or slaps. Holding a lance steady, they charge forward at a full gallop, their goal to hit a spot on the helmet of their opponent, breaking the lance. This was called a taint, and they were scored on how many they had. The knight who broke the most lances won the day. The impact of physical activity on Henry VIII's character arc continues surprisingly. In fact, Henry as a king was not exempt from injury. His status and privilege could not circumvent the occupational hazards of gruelling and violent medieval sport. In one terrible act of 1524 against the first Duke of Suffolk, Henry forgot to lower the visor on his helmet. His helmet had obscured his vision, and unable to hear the cries from the crowd, Henry was unprotected, leaving his forehead gashed above his right eye. The lance also splintered in Henry's face. The king was unhorsed, but jumped back up, assuring everyone he was fine. He was not. He suffered from debilitating headaches, believed to be migraines, for the rest of his life after this injury. Also, the splintering of the wood may have aggravated an old hunting injury in his thigh. In later life, this would hobble him. Depending on your familiarity with the story, you may be aware of Catherine Parr's role as almost a carer in his later years, an open wound causing much of the trouble as she let the pus continually have to drain out. This was that injury. It once closed up, and his doctors wrote that he was black in the face from the pain. It was at times lanced with a red-hot poker. Although diagnosing this wound today is based on symptoms only, we don't know precisely what it was. Another terrible accident occurred at a tournament at Greenwich Palace on the 24th of January 1536 when 44-year-old Henry, in full armour, was thrown from his horse, itself armoured, which then fell on top of him. Estimates put a horse's weight and armour to be approximately 1,500 pounds, the weight of a car, perspective for a modern mind. He was unconscious for two hours and bled from his nose and ears. He was thought at first to have been fatally injured. Henry survived, but a change in his personality occurred after this accident. This may account partly for how hard-nosed, swashbuckling Henry was, and that's the Henry that we read about in the history books. Yet again, we cannot attribute with any certainty how much the brain trauma affected his temperament and unbending desires. How much can this account for Henry's weight gain? Well, his athletic build at 29 can be judged fairly accurately from a made-to-measure suit of armour he wore at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, the meeting held in June 1520 with his great rival Francis I of France. With the natural advantages of youth, Henry remained in reasonable shape with his weight proportionate to his height. Well, ultimately, 
It was around this time that his weight gain began to become drastically noticeable. So on the surface, yes, the accumulation of injuries massively reduced his participation in his beloved sports. This created a conflict between the energy he inputted and the amount he used up, naturally. The lost youth, the being of a beloved and learned prince, was bygone. He was now enshrined in feelings of inferiority, which for someone with a superiority complex needs unpacking. Why should the King of England, a man powerful enough to undo centuries of Roman Catholic tradition, feel not good enough because he fell off a horse? A lack of perspective, sure. In his mind, his wives were failing him on the childbearing front. Whether bad fortune or fate, or something in between, he became the antithesis of what had been promised of that young prince. The ego, which guided almost everything he did, came to loathe both who he used to be, for who he could not be further away from it, and who he was now, a rapidly debilitating hunk of meat. The man's propensity towards self-loathing his elder self as a motivation for his ridiculous eating habits, the scale of which I'm coming back to, also likely stemmed from his sense of the aesthetic. If you walk down the corridors of Hampton Court in your mind, or any palace you can imagine if you've not been, the realm of the ornate, the culture-transcending beauty, is an unavoidable reality which lined the walls. The work of Raphael in the Great Hall at Hampton Court would only further remind the king that he too was destined for such iconography. His postnatal fate was to, like his father's, to be contained to an oil painting which would be glossed over by the eyes of the people for centuries to come. Image, fashion and pride were particularly important to young Henry. Everywhere he went, Henry surrounded himself with rich displays of gold and silver. Quote, he is the best-dressed sovereign in the world. His robes are the richest and most superb that can be imagined. End quote. This was naturally reflected in Henry's armour. The Tonler armour was put together in a very short space of time by the armouries at Greenwich for the king to wear. The masterful armourers adapted a number of existing pieces and created a beautiful suit etching decorations including figures of St. George, the Virgin and Child, and the Tudor Roses. The armour also reflected Henry's fashion sense. The shape of the breastplate and tonlet mimicked the jerkin with flared skirt popular during his reign. The monarch's recognition of his reign in the symbolic world, as well as the material world, is something he was preciously conscious of as his eternal image further inspires his self-loathing. A man raised and thrust into a legacy of lavish excess cannot easily irk those tendencies when they are so deeply ingrained, so instead he leans further into them, which for a man being quickly deprived of the ability to move freely involves taking food on a trip down the esophagus, which came at the expense of his image. The waistband bursting image we associate primarily with his reign today, other than the wife killing image, that is. To conclude Henry's poor health before we return to Tudor eating habits more generally, this all led to ten years of leg ulcers, which had to be dressed daily, and whatever you imagine a medieval dressing looks like, you can probably assume it is a lot worse than that. 
Apparently, the stench from his legs was so bad it could be smelled three rooms away. He had to be winched onto his horse. For a man who was perceived still now as one of the most powerful monarchs, it must have it almost makes you feel sorry for his battered state. Until you remind yourself he beheaded two of his wives, kept his wife from ever seeing his daughter after their divorce, and since the end of that marriage insisted all must acknowledge him rather than the Pope as God's representative on earth. Humans weren't designed for that sort of status, obviously. Anyone who refused this assertion was dispatched naturally. The execution rate is estimated during his reign to have been between 54,000 and 72,000. For a country with a population of 3 million in 1541, this is 0.2%. His Chancellor, Thomas More, who was killed for failing to agree with this assertion in 1535, warned the rest of his associates, quote, He often boasts to me that you have the king's ear and have fun with him freely. This is like having fun with tamed lions. Often it is harmless, but just as often there is fear of harm. Often he roars in rage for no known reason, and suddenly the fun becomes fatal. End quote. This and plenty of other examples of Henry's narcissistic and murderous petulance make a case for his health issues as the cause of this toxic streak difficult to uphold. He was a piece of work before his health issues, and he wasn't any less of one after. Probably more so. Life on the Tudor peasant farm for health-stricken elders played out slightly differently. Let's imagine a Tudor family of five. Firstly, living into his 50s, Henry beat the average age of death in Tudor times by a good 20 years. So the concept of an elder was nearer our door than any of us in modernity would like to imagine. The family of six wasn't a family of six at all, as half the children had died before the age of ten, as per the statistics. So now we have a family of four. The church assented that due to no sex before marriage, and marriage necessary for the continuity of the species and this family's bloodline, that once puberty had begun, a child would be married off. This was widely accepted as age 12 for girls and age 14 for boys. Very difficult for our modern minds to wrap around. So let's assume the youngest daughter, who we'll say is 14, has been married off. This leaves three. The remaining son works on the nearby estate farming the land. So does his father, for enough money to feed his ill-stricken mother. At 36, she is unable to leave the confines of their tiny country shack for the effects of dysentery. The pittance they earn affords them the opportunity to exchange 16-hour days in the plight of the British finger-nipping frost to get something to eat. Either perform this daily ritual or starve. Seasonality was a major factor of the diets in this household and many like it. For our small-scale farmers, there was insufficient feed to keep livestock over winter, so the majority were slaughtered on the 11th of November and as much of the meat preserved as possible. But no matter how thrifty they try to be, eking out the meat of a single pig through the whole of a winter with a few onions and leeks must have been a hard task. The wealthier landowners could keep more meat, slaughtering as needed. Game continued to be hunted throughout the winter by the wealthy, 
up that poaching by the poor could mean hanging, obviously. Before heading out to work, the father and son would consume bread, a tiny slover of butter and sage. The bread would need to be baked in a communal oven, for which a household would need to pay a fee for using. Bread was so important to the diet that the Assize of Bread, first published in 1266 and not repealed until 1863, stipulated the cost of loaves. A loaf was designated by its price, a farthing, a halfpenny or a penny loaf, and the weight of the bread the purchaser could expect for that price would vary depending on grain cost and the amount the baker was entitled to as a profit, which was strictly regulated. If a baker gave a short measure, he could be brought before the magistrate to have his loaves weighed. Repeat offenders could end with time in the pillory. To minimise the risk, bakers would throw in an extra piece to make a baker's dozen. Morning bread would likely be washed down with a small ale. The scarcity of safe drinking water made it unhealthy to drink much water. Nothing quite like a hair of the dog to get the work day started. With no refrigeration, fruits could only be eaten in season. Only those sprung on public land for risk of poaching. Most households would serve three meals if they could make it possible. Dinner being the main meal of the day, coming in at around noon. The gruelling, toiling, troublesome burden of grey, bitter mornings followed by the drudgeries of work and coupled only with a steady diet of only just enough appears exactly how we imagine it. No frilly edges and no silk sheets. When we return to the Grand Hall at Hampton Court and are greeted by the grandeur of the drapery of Raphael adorning the walls, we summon the antithesis. Naturally, as Henry was the closest man to God, after all, luckily we have arrived just in time for course one. The eating material made its way down the river and had been stewed over all morning by his workforce. Henry VIII's kitchens at Hampton Court Palace were the largest of Tudor England. 200 cooks, sergeants, grooms and pages worked to produce over 800 meals a day for the hungry household of Henry VIII. The Tudor kitchens were divided into a number of departments, each controlled by a sergeant and a team of yeomen and grooms. The kitchen department, where meat was roasted, was under the control of three master cooks, one for the king, the queen, whoever that may have been at the time, and the rest of the court. These staff toiled under a complex set of rules determining which of the 1,200-odd members of Henry's court qualified for meals as part of their pay. Working in the kitchens could be a sweaty and dirty job. If you've seen a modern kitchen, you can only imagine what a medieval kitchen looked like. A Spanish visitor to the Tudor court in 1554 said the kitchens were veritable hells, such is the stir and bustle in them. There is plenty of beer here, and they drink more than would fill the Valladolid River. Henry VIII's kitchens continued to be used for a further 200 years, feeding the tables of Tudor, Stuart and Georgian monarchs. Today we shall focus on the King's Banquet. Feeding the court was a complex business, all done without modern conveniences, as 1.3 million logs burned in the hellish fires every year. The smell of Henry's foul mood is the only thing muting the airborne taste of his ulcers, which he was unable to get out and join the tennis match today. 
Luckily, the swinging open of the kitchen door sends notes of freshly prepared produce swerving down the short corridor and billowing down the long oak table. Today, you must entertain, well, anybody. Anybody who would cement his position of authority. Today, it was church ministers. His church, obviously. The rumbling of their stomachs at the thought of a banquet, overpowering the reminder of what their congregation's daily bread consisted of. Up to 20 dishes could be served in Henry's feasts, a number I'm not sure you or I want me to break down, so let's go with a few less. For first table manners, Tudor etiquette comprised with Henry sat at the furthest end from where the silver trays are being carried in due procession. Servants all too aware of the natural order, as a beeline for the king to bestow the gifts upon him first. He did not often eat dinner in the great hall, yet on this occasion he was joined by the highest ranking people at the top table, raised up with other tables arranged at right angles. A strict order of hierarchy was kept, with the higher ranking people sitting at the top of the table to the right hand of the top table on both sides moving down to the lowest ranking person at the furthest end of the table to the left of the top table. To make sure everyone was seated correctly, books of etiquette gave elaborate orders of precedence. Cutlery remained a strong theme in Tudor table etiquette. With eating being communal, it was important to follow strict rules which were elaborate yet practical, as they prevented anyone touching food that might be eaten by somebody else. Everyone brought his own cutlery to the meal, forks being considered a fancy foreign notion. The requirement for a personal spoon is behind the custom of giving one as a christening gift. The place setting was a trencher made of silver or even gold for the king, then of lesser value material through to the sanded ash or for the poorest bread, together with a cup, a loaf of bread of appropriate quality, fine white for the lord and coarse brown for lesser mortals. Among the upper classes, a linen napkin was provided. Essentially, everything that we can imagine, and Tudor peasants could never imagine, would be on the berth of the table at one point or another. Sugar, salt, spices, olive oil, foreign fruits. The offerings were usually meat-centric and could often total more than 5,000 calories per person. Henry was the only person allowed to eat with a fork, a trophy he gripped in his paw, at the sight of the first tray bearing spit-roasted meat dropped on his table. This the rest of the party would watch him consume initially, as heapfuls of the first course were laden on his plate. Boar was eaten at every meal, easily accessible for him, and an expression of extreme wealth due to its cost. In a typical year, the royal kitchen consumed 1,200 oxen, 8,200 sheep, 2,300 deer, 760 calves, 1,800 pigs, and 53 boar. And no, that wasn't just Henry. After a few belly-sized mouthfuls, the rest of the gentry could begin to be served. The same offering in increasingly smaller portions and on gradually less elaborate platters made their way around the room in the way hierarchy dictated. I couldn't really find any accounts of Henry actually eating but I imagine, ironically, some sort of transubstantiation occurring as he starts devouring the pig. He certainly got stuck into his serving with his fork in his little trotter, shy of licking his plate clean. 
I'm sure he had a servant for that. Whilst the now ceramic plates are bringing the lowest rung of guests that bore, the second round of blessings are being brought to the king. This time, grilled beaver's tails, well meat and roasted peacock continue the theme of extravagance. This was typified by the serving of the peacock, the most ornate of culinary spectacles, as the roasted bird was presented in a gild of its own iridescent feathers and its beak dashed in gold leaf. This must have been ornate and ceremonious for the onlookers who had just begun tucking into their boar to see this bird gliding down the hall towards the chained-up bulldog frothing at their mouth in anticipation. The liver king will be proud of Henry, as the banquet adhered to a head-to-tail consumption of animals, something which we have lost as we live in less proximity to the land. These parts were considered delicacies, as the beef liver, spleen and others sat next to the coquettish peacock, dressed in vinegar. The king was in full motion, as were his guests warming up to be, as the dishes kept on coming and he kept diving deeper into them. The hand-to-mouth motion he had down to a tee, gliding through the plates as a stone skims over the water and looks to bounce on for eternity. Inside he was not yet finished with, as black pudding, still a popular UK dish, came up next. Of course, like most things, the branding distracts you from the terror of what's inside it. Pig's intestine with congealed pig's blood. On this day, the coordinator was feeling particularly flamboyant digging out the traditional royal show of extravagance, a roasted swan. The tears of decadence had to be replaced, especially as they were edible shows. The peacock had been devoured, so the swan must replace it. The swan was swung in, often with a gold crown on its head, an interweaving of symbology that bears resemblance still today in the UK, as English common law stipulates that the swans belong to the crown and may not be eaten without permission from the king. Sounds very carnival, so surely they ate some vegetables. Yes, but stigma around being viewed as food of the poor meant that royal banquets such as these were made up of less than 20% vegetables. Desserts were not common in English aristocratic tradition until the 18th century. As I said earlier, clean drinking water was not always available, meaning that wine and ale were the go-tos. If you thought that all they did in the crown was get drunk with taxpayers' money, you really should have seen these guys. Historians estimate that 600,000 gallons of ale, enough to fill an Olympic swimming pool, and 75,000 gallons of wine, 1,500 bathtubs, were drank every year at Hampton Court alone. In totality, Henry was a beast. The spoilt and excessive nature of his wickedness we get in the first impression when we see his portrait for the very first time. Of course, he is more complicated than only just being that. Yet, the unnecessary vulgarity of his eating habits at a time when so many had so little only reinforces that. To what extent he is a victim of his own lineage, unable to relinquish the ritualised extravagance his bloodline had worked so hard to secure, is a factor worth considering. Yet it was this desire, these cravings, that left him bedridden and incapacitated him, was also the same desire that murdered thousands around him, including those who he claimed to love, in pursuit of his own infallibility. 
which he never ordained. It was in his greed and his appetite that he found out that he is just a rotting piece of meat, the same as any of us. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed, please subscribe and please share it with your friends.